This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hey everybody, it's Gary Vaynerchuk. Super excited to do an uh, interview uh, on the podcast, as a lot of you know, uh, pretty infrequent these days given the uh, global situation. But leadership is something that I uh, am very, very passionate about. And my uh, esteemed guest here, David Rubenstein, who I'm going to let introduce himself and create uh, some context for you, both about his co-founding of the iconic Carlisle Group, but also the uh, the book that he's uh, written. Uh, and I think we're gonna get into a fun conversation. So David, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thank you, my friend. Why don't you give the uh, Vayner Nation, the audience here, a little context of uh, your professional career, and then we'll uh, maybe I'll bounce around, ask a couple questions, and then we'll go into the book. Hey, I was trained as a lawyer. Uh, wasn't that good at that, so I got out of that. Went to work at the White House for President Carter. Wasn't that good at that, so I got out of that. <laughs> Uh, I went back to practice law. That didn't work out so well either again. So I ultimately started a firm called the Carlisle Group, which became a large private equity firm. And I ran that for some 30 years or so. And now I'm the largest shareholder of it and the co-executive chair. But I spend a fair amount of my time on philanthropy. I was a uh, original signer of the Giving Pledge that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett put together. And I now am involved in essentially giving away my money I spent, spent a lot of time on nonprofits. I am the chairman of the Kennedy Center in Washington. I've been the chairman of the Smithsonian Institution. I'm the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. I was the chairman of my alma mater, Duke University. I now spend a lot of time on university boards. I'm on the Harvard Corporation, the University of Chicago, and Johns Hopkins Medicine. And I now also uh, have a television show on Bloomberg uh, called Peer to Peer Conversations. And that led to a book that I did on leadership, where I took people like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Colin Powell, David Petraeus, and so forth, and asked them what it was that led them to be leaders. And I distilled that in a book called How to Lead, which is now out and on the New York Times uh, business bestseller list. So that's what I've been doing. David, going back to your youth, do you think you went into law uh, because that was a good thing to do according to your parents or society? You know, what, what made you go down that path? Well, my parents were not college or high school graduates, so they didn't really have a lot of uh, influence on what I would do because they didn't have an experience in that. But if you were Jewish, as I was and am, um, probably your parents would say, why don't you be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist? So right. I didn't think I was very good in the sciences. I was afraid I'd get arthritis in my fingers if I became a dentist. <laughs> So I said I would be a lawyer, and I was probably better at talking than I was at uh, things that would take me into the to medical world. So I became a lawyer, but I also thought that lawyers went into politics. Politics was something I was interested in. My real goal was to work in, uh, in the White House for a president, and um, ultimately I did that. I didn't have any interest in making money. I didn't care about it. I grew up re relatively without any money, and so you didn't have any money. You didn't think about it. When I was growing up, there were no billionaires in the United States, and it wasn't something people aspired to be. David, when when you how old were you when you were invited to be part of the Carter White House? I was 27 years old, uh, well too uh, much too young. I was only three years out of law school, but I became the deputy domestic policy advisor to the president of the United States. So when you're three years out of law school and at that age, and you're going around on Air Force One and Marine One and Camp David, you know you can think you're pretty good. And people <laughs> used to tell me I was very smart and brilliant and all that. Then when I looked for a job after we lost the to Ronald Reagan in 1980, nobody wanted to hire me because they didn't want to have a Carter White House aide then. So I had to spend a couple of months trying to find a job. And 
I didn't want to tell my mother I was unemployable. So I just tell her I had so many offers. I didn't know which one to take. Crippled, crippled by opportunity. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so many chances to take the job. I couldn't decide. And at 27, when you got the word that you, in essence, based on what I'm hearing from you, achieved a goal of your youth, was it anticlimactic? Was it remarkable? Was it 15 minutes of jubilation and then fear? Like, how did that moment, you know, I think a lot of people listening right now will end up achieving. I'm always fascinated by goal setting. You know, pe people go in very different directions and some people find themselves achieving certain goals or the goal early on. How did that one play in your mind? Well, I was a junior White House aide, the deputy domestic policy advisor. I thought Carter would be reelected and I would be the senior domestic advisor. And then after that, for four years, I would go out, practice law, come back as a cabinet officer, and eventually work my way up to be a senior uh, important government official. I didn't care about money so much, so that wasn't a big factor. Uh, unfortunately, we ran against a man named Ronald Reagan in 1980. And I said, how can a man that old get out of bed in the morning? He's 69 years old. Today, right. he's too young to run for president. Um, and of course, I'm now 71, so 69 looks like a teenager to me. <laughs> but we didn't think we could possibly uh, lose to him. And that's what happens when you get filled with, um, I would say, uh, cognitive dissonance. When you work in the White House, people tell you how great you are. And you don't listen to any bad news because you think people don't really know what they're talking about when they write something bad about you. And that's maybe what we've seen in other White Houses today. Today at the White House and the current White House, I suspect most people think that the president's going to win because they just think he's wonderful, I suspect. And uh, and as a result, they are probably going to be surprised, I, I guess. When I mean, Dave, do you, do you, like, you know, being in business and, and the, being the, the iconic private equity firm that you co-founded, uh, obviously took in many, many, many businesses, many of which at one point or another um, were extremely good businesses, which you know either led to the exact reason that it, you know you went out and acquired or the reverse, you, you know, were great, but then, you know, do you, do, you feel, do you feel the delusion that probably happens at every White House, Republican and Democrat over the last hundreds of years is a similarity to what you see in businesses where businesses oftentimes get so cocky at the executive level, they're misunderstanding what's happening at the consumer level, and that ultimately leads to their demise? Well, the president of the United States and the people who work in the White House are not unlike chief executives. People tend to tell them what they want, that they, they expect they want to hear, so they don't hear the bad news. Secondly, when they read about bad news or they hear about it, they think if only the people knew as much as I know, they wouldn't say these bad things about us. And eventually they'll figure out that actually I know more than them, but it doesn't really always work out that way. So in the business world, when you buy a company on day one, it always looks perfect or you wouldn't be buying it. But then eventually you realize you may have made a mistake. The world went, 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 went against your thoughts about where it was going. And when, when the time comes to make a change in the CEO, you typically waited too long because you didn't believe things could be as bad as they turned out to be. And in the buyout world, probably 50% of the time, you have to replace the CEO who you once thought was wonderful. And it just works out that way. And sometimes you can't anticipate things. For example, let's suppose you were an investor in AMC or Marriott or Carnival Cruise Lines. Um, you would say, these are great businesses. They're booming. And then the pandemic comes along. Well, who do you blame? Well, you don't blame yourself. Usually you blame somebody else. I mean, at that level, David, I'm sure, you know, I'd love to get your perspective. That's why you're here. Th that's one of the true rare occurrences where it's so macro. 
so unbelievably macro that that become that that's one of those rare moments because I think accountability is everything. But those that is one of the true rare moments where you can chalk up a macro circumstance or no. Well, you can you don't you don't blame yourself as much for it. Uh, you tend to have a tendency to say, well, that's somebody else made that mistake. I'm just going to try to make the best I can of it. Uh, but there are sometimes you make mistakes. You hire the CEO. And then you find out later he's a good time CEO and the economy slows down. He's not a bad time CEO. Yeah, I think a ton about wartime and peacetime generals. I think when you when you look at some of the great CEOs, she or he um, get very exposed in things like the Great Recessions or times like this. Well, as it is said uh, frequently, generals fight the last war. So if you're very good at fighting World War II, you may not be so good at fighting Korean War or the Vietnam War. Or if you're very good in Iraq, you may not be so good in Afghanistan. So it just tends to be a, a situation where you tend to know what you know and you don't change very much. The great CEOs and the great generals are ones that have vision about what's likely to happen in the future, not what happened in the past, and they respond to that. And you see that, for example, take the Civil War. In the David, Civil David, I apologize for interrupting. I have a very interesting question because I'm passionate about this subject. All right. Do you believe that Fortune 5000, I'm going to categorized that way. CEOs almost consistently are in a place of such scrutiny now with 24 hour media news cycles, every 90 days accountability, quarter to quarter, that I, I've been as, you know, I grew up in entrepreneur land. I, I became an early investor in Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and kind of rode that wave. And then I decided that I wanted to build the greatest communications infrastructure, ironically, um, bleeds a little bit into your world. I became very aware of 3G and I said, you know, I'm gonna build the reverse of 3G. I'm building, currently I'm building a communications marketing media company strictly to get into private equity because I, because I believe that most private equity firms in the world are good at finding efficiencies when they buy a company. And what I wanna do is create hyper consumer growth around brands that I think have the potential to be reformulated into contemporary channels. Right. And during that period of education over the last 11 years, working with some of the biggest companies in the world, the CEOs, the CMOs, board members, and spending a lot of time with activist investors, PE executives, hedge fund, VCs, I am fascinated by this stunning high percentage that do no anticipation for actual consumer behavior, live in Excel sheets, are math based on the back end and are completely 90 day driven because they care about their own selfish short term ROIs, which ultimately come to the demise of the business. Thoughts? Well, obviously when Jeff Bezos was building his company and he took it public, people made fun of him in the, in the analyst world because they said, you don't care about earnings, you have no earnings. And every quarter he would have more revenue, but they say there's no earnings. And he would laugh at them behind their back because he knew he was building a great brand. And at the end, he had the last laugh. So the great entrepreneurs, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, they don't worry about earnings per share per quarter. They worry about building the franchise and eventually the earnings will come. People who they hire sometimes who've been to BCG, Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, uh, Bain and so forth, they tend to focus much more on the more traditional things, worrying about earnings on each quarter and, and earnings, revenue growth and so forth. But the people that are the superstars of the business world tend to do things that are different than what you tend to learn at Harvard Business School, let's say. Why is there not, not that I'm asking the uh, typical Fortune 5000 CEO to become one of those individuals, 
my bigger question is, why are they not showing some level of tendencies that look like that? I mean, you know, to me, it's almost like 100% in the other direction, complete obsession in hitting numbers in a 90-day window. I mean, I'm, I'm staggered by the lack of conversation of modern, what the consumer's doing on podcasting or what's happening with last mile delivery or cloud kitchens, or there's just so many clear indicators of disruption every day because of the internet scale, yet you know, finding some costs here or making ROI decisions on reports based on a Nielsen's, I mean, there is some silliness out there, David. Well, in the early days of a company, they tend to focus on growth. And as you know, the buyout world is one where you took an existing company and tried to make it somewhat more efficient. Uh, the growth capital world is completely different, as is the venture capital world. So if you invest in growth capital, you tend to have entrepreneurs running those companies much more who are focused on growing the revenue base and believe that the earnings will eventually come. But David, 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 what's the biggest change in PEs uh, from the day you co-founded Carlisle Group to the current state of the market? Well, in the early days of private equity, it was basically 95% debt, 5% equity, sometimes 99% debt and 1% equity. So they're highly levered. Secondly, the people doing the deals tended to be former investment bankers whose skill set was financial engineering. Today, you have maybe 50% equity and 50% debt, so it's much less levered. You tend to have more people who have operational experience who are working in these companies, and therefore they know how to fix companies a bit more than mm -hmm. the former investment banker types did. And also, Private equity is today seen as mainstream, not alternative. Very few people do not have something in their portfolio that is private equity. Uh, generally, people uh, avoided that uh, 20, 30 years ago because they thought it was too risky. People don't think it's that risky these days. No, it's see, you know, in a world of SPACs and VCs and this and that, it, it seems, to your point, wildly conservative by nature, no? Yes, the private equity firms are often considered uh, less exciting than the, you know. How, the, how does that run through your head? Like, do you, do you laugh? Does that make you snicker sometimes or or giggle a little bit? Because you realize, you know, back when you were starting, there was a, there was a, a a lot of cynicism or curiosity of this volatile concept. I've learned a lot. From, I have a daughter that started a private equity firm recently in the healthy food area, and she's teaching me how to uh, raise money in ways that I never knew about. And she's talking about the uh, ways to incite young next generation investors and things I didn't think about. I used to introduce her to my friends who might invest with her, I thought. And, and they now it's the reverse. Well, they, they said they don't understand what she's talking about, but they said my <laughs> daughter might. And so they turn her over to their daughters and their daughters say, yes, this is what we want. So it's a different generation. The world moves forward. David, hot, I want some hot takes, almost like if we're on the ESPN debate show of like a, a little speed here around leadership. When I say leadership, what kind of goes in your mind? What are, what are some of the words, adjectives, things that run through your brain? Well, leadership is something that we need because you can't have everybody be a leader. You have to have some people be followers. And leadership is what moves the business world forward and the civilization forward. The best leaders, in my view, have failed a bit in their career. They've overcome that. They have recognized that luck isn't very important, that they're not so brilliant by themselves. They are people that know how to share the credit they're people that know how to motivate people. They're people that, in my view, have some humility to them, not arrogance. They're people who have a high degree of integrity. And they're people that other people really want to follow because they're good role models. Do you think patience is a play in there? Well, entrepreneurs um, tend to be less patient than, let's say, uh, other kind of leaders. If you're the leader of a large company, you may be more patient. But, you know, too much. Do you think, do you th do you think David, 
You know, it's funny because when you talk about Bezos, I actually think that was a, I actually find that patience is that entrepreneurship, that the the speed and the and the and the way it are viewed a lot of times is the facade and the makeup that a, that a lot when you kind of wash that off if you look carefully there's a lot of patience going on there which because you overlay patience you I think it, I think patience as a framework actually allows for humility or for compassion and sympathy and empathy which I think are also required to be a great leader any any thoughts when I say that because it's something I've been really thinking a lot about. Well, the people that often start companies are driven people, high IQ, high work quotient, and they have to be patient with the people that they've hired who are not quite as driven as they are. And so if they just yell and scream at these people all the time, they won't have all these people working for them. So they That's have to right. be patient. They also have to be patient to wait till the customers catch up with what they're doing because sales might take a while before people realize what you've done is reinvent part a part of the world. That's so right. yeah, patience is required uh, to some extent, but impatience is important as well because if you're impatient you're determined to get something done relatively quickly you will motivate other people to work harder david one of the things you know i i I, i've been very proud in my i'm 44 years old about to turn 45 i've i i I come from a you know a similar background as you i was born in this in belarus in the former soviet union i immigrated here in the late 70s um and you know lived in a studio apartment in Queens with my family. My dad had a job as a liquor store clerk and eventually owned his own store. And I, I kind of, you know, I'm a son of a merchant, more of a story of the 20s and 30s Eastern European Jews than let's say modern times because such a small group of Russian Jews got out in the late 70s. I, I've always, you know, th- thus, why did I tell you that? Because I started running my dad's business at 22 years old. I took a, th- you know, a $3.8 million a year revenue business doing 10% gross profit and built it to a $65 million business with no capital, not not raising, not even a credit line. And I did that through innovation, email marketing, .com, Google AdWords. But I led people and I, I lead a thousand people today. I have a big platform where I, where I talk about mindset and leadership and kindness. I, Recently, in the last three to four years, it became obvious to me that my obsession of kindness came at the lack of candor, which created entitlement. When when do leaders miss the mark and actually create entitlement instead of fake safe environments that can really flourish? Because that's something that I've had to recalibrate in the last 36 months and I'm in my process and I view and I and I view that my inability to have candor led to entitlement because I was taking on so much as a quote unquote leader, but it created delusion underneath me. Well, you tend to get people who surround entrepreneurs who eventually tell them what they think they wanna hear. That often happens in the business world and the political world. And so if you believe that everybody who's- It was, was, you know, David, I I apologize. You know, it's funny to me, I, I'm incapable of listening to pro or con around me because I only focus on what the consumer is telling me. It was less about what they were making me feel good and couldn't tell me what I was doing wrong. It was more that I was incapable of communicating their shortcomings because of the negativity that I felt surrounded it. I've only come to recently understanding that candor is kindness. And I was curious as you've studied leadership, I do think safety for your people underneath you feeling safe is an incredible infrastructure for speed, which creates, you know, incredible results, both in sport and in business. And I was curious if you'd come across um, 
this subject or, or how you view it in the leadership scale of the fine line between safety or it becoming entitlement? Well, if you uh, are working a business and you build a business, you want people to think you're actually moving forward and you're re reasonably safe and trying to take some risks. But if people are so nervous about the future, they can't focus on what they're doing. That's not good either. You have to walk a fine line between scaring people who are working for you and kind of motivating them, motivating them by a little bit of fear that if they don't do a good job, something bad will happen. But they shouldn't worry about their entire life falling apart if something doesn't work out well in the company. So you have to walk a fine line and not scare people too much. In the end, you'll lose those people because they'll quit. The, the comp here for me is, and, and you've had you know uh, an incredible career, which has created a, a, an opportunity to probably see a lot of families that uh, have means. And I think the thing that so many families that have means worry about is that next generation you know, especially when you come, from, you know, especially if you're, you know, you and I are part of the part, the the lineage that, right. you know, it's like I say to a lot of my friends, it's hard to be hungry when you're always fed. You well, know, and I think the 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 comp I'm making here is I think a lot of well-to-do families struggle with finding the balance for their children to create motivation and to create reality because they live in cocoons. I think about that in the business world as well. Sometimes in leaderships, thoughts. Jackie Kennedy famously said that if you mess up raising your children, nothing else in life matters. And the truth is, in hindsight, when you grow up in a relatively modest background, um, there's a big advantage. You realize you have to learn skills yourself and you're going to make it on your own or you're not going to make it. Correct. You get to be very wealthy and you try to raise children. It's very, very difficult. Correct. Uh, I would say, you know, if you look at the children of extremely wealthy families, they tend to have some challenges. Nobody in the Forbes 400 was raised by somebody who was also in the Forbes 400. If you're very, very wealthy, you're not likely to produce a child who's also gonna be so hungry that he or she is gonna go out and make a couple billion dollars. It just doesn't happen. So that you just have to accept that. So in hindsight, your upbringing and my upbringing were big advantages to us because if you have the loving attention of your parents and their willingness to support you, what more do you really need? If you're very, very wealthy and you just throw money at your kids, they're not likely to be that successful in my view. Do you think there's comps there in the way that people, I mean, I, I feel like I see that a lot with bonuses in the corporate world, you know, throwing money at the, as the carrot, or you, you know, I think a lot of times people are too one dimensional in their uh, leadership or inspiration, agree? Yeah, well, sometimes, uh, you know, you people just measure their success in a company by what the size of their compensation is, as opposed to other qualities they should be developing that are not often as measurable as uh, dollars. And uh, sometimes people overpay people and, and the result is not what you want. It's the reverse of what you want. People get fat and happy and they think they're great when they really should be improving. The cliche question when someone writes a book like this, what was the one trait that you saw across the board of all these leaders? Was there anything that stood out? Yes. Um, the great leaders, the really great leaders are people that recognize they had luck because they had failed at something, they overcame it, and as a result, they're really humble. If you sat down and had dinner with Warren Buffett, you would have no idea that he's the greatest investor of all time or that he's worth $100 billion. It just, you wouldn't see that. Or if you sat down with Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos is, you know, very approachable. In the history of the world, the wealthiest men in the world throughout history have been very isolated and didn't have great sense of humor. You know, Howard Hughes wasn't a barrel of laughs. Uh, Dave Paul Getty 
you know, wasn't exactly a person who was, you know, hanging out with a lot of other people. But Jeff Bezos is very accessible, as is Bill Gates, relative to people who have been the richest people in the world in the past. So I do think that humility is an important thing. Now, you can have great leaders who are not humble. You know, I suspect that Napoleon wasn't really humble. I suspect Alexander Great, who attached the name Great to himself, probably wasn't humble. But generally, the people I admire the most and ones I've written about have a fair amount of humility. Uh, I, David, I love you for saying that. I'm a big fan of that. I, I, I just don't understand how humans decide just because of their wealth creation talent, which is often God-given, that, that all of a sudden they need to impose that and are unable to calibrate balancing it with humility. I just don't understand it. Arrogance is something that I don't really uh, value that much. And I see it from time to time. And you can judge a lot of people's flaws by how arrogant they are. Do you, David, do you think that people struggle with um, watching someone and not realizing the difference between actually just being passionate and confident and being arrogant and lacking humility? Because I find that to be the case quite a bit. Well, you can be passionate about something without bragging about how great you are. You can say your company's very good without saying you are great. I think a lot of people give credit to other people. Ronald Reagan famously said, there's no limit to what humans can accomplish if they're willing to share the credit. And if people are willing to share the credit, I think it's a great uh, great thing. And if you make a mistake, take the blame. We learned that. That, that, you know, David, it's funny. That part, I think a lot about. I think the difference between, the, the, the balance between sharing the accolades and the difference between being accountable. I find leaders struggle with all the way accountability. You know, like I said to a, a buddy of mine, I said, yeah, but you hired that person. Well, John Kennedy made a famous speech after the Bay of Pigs in which he said, I made a mistake, it's my fault. And his popularity went up and people were surprised. How could you make such a big mistake and your popularity went up? It's because- Accountability. Right, he, he said it was his fault. Now, what we've learned is that politicians now say it was my fault for one second, and then they say it really wasn't my fault. But, right, but, yeah. In, the, in this last minute, and I really enjoy this, couple things. The book is available on Amazon and all platforms. Can you please give it a name one more time because I have a funny feeling a lot of people listening are gonna buy it. How to Lead. How, kept it, you kept it simple. How is that still available, David? Well, I don't know they said it was. How to Lead, <laughs> David. How competitive were you for this book to do well? I think people will find this interesting. You have all the, these successes, right? Obviously, you know, but here comes the book. It's a week out. How much is it running through your head of like, I, I, want, this, I want this book to sell. I want this to do well. I don't need my buddy, uh, you know, who's selling more books or I want to be on this list or like how much did your competitive juices get going? Well, of course, if you work on a book for a couple of years, you want it to do well. I'm giving all the money away to the uh, children's Yes, hospital. it's not, clearly, it's not a financial value. And that's what I mean. It's not about the dollars. It's the competitive spirit that you don't want one of your buddies, you know, hitting you up saying they sold more copies and or the passion to get it out in the world and read and or just your own internal, like you like games and you want it to be successful. Everybody wants to be successful in what they do. And so I want it to be successful. I want people to read it and I hope young people read it so they can be inspired to be leaders themselves. David, what's the most interesting thing of, from your perspective of the young generation right now? You know, you, you, you're in a fortunate place of living a, a full life at this point. If I said to you, hot take, Gen Z, under 30, your observation, what, what's most intriguing to you? I wouldn't say your favorite thing. I wouldn't say the thing that they're missing. I mean, intriguing to you. 
I think the younger people, to a greater extent than my generation, are interested in changing the world for the better, doing things that are healthier for the world. They're less focused on just making large sums of money. They yes. really want to help other people, and they want to be more connected to the whole world, not just their own little neighborhood or country. Dave, one last little selfish question because I'm so passionate about marketing communication. I think when the investment world realizes how the Fortune 500s are wasting money on television and other, and even internet, and just there's a, you'd be flabbergasted, I have a feeling based on your background on how poorly marketing media is spent in the Fortune 500 land. Is that even on your radar? Is there, is there in your circles, in your radars, is there an understanding right now that marketing is changing dramatically and the Coca-Colas and the BMWs and the, and the Marriott's of the world are, are in a real chasm, like a real, real chasm? Well, let's put it this way. If I was doing this book tour 20 years ago, I'd be on television and radio. Now I'm spending most of my time with people who do podcasts because people are listening to podcasts and uh, my children say, Dad, you're not on this podcast. You should be on that podcast. And so more and more people are marketing things differently because podcasts and other social media are the way to go. Clearly, you understood that for yourself. Do you believe in the investment world, in, the, in Madison Avenue, in Wall Street, that there's an understanding of this massive gap and enormity of wasted marketing dollars that could be driving much bigger business results for the biggest companies in the world? Or do you think that conversation hasn't bubbled up yet into the top 500 it's people? It's happening, but it's moving more slowly, much more slowly. For example, when Facebook uh, went public a number of years ago, maybe eight or nine years ago, people said, well, Facebook's good, but you're not really on mobile devices. And they said, well, geez, why is that so important? Eventually, uh, Facebook figured out how to be on mobile devices. But until then, they were really getting caught and behind. So today you've got to be on mobile devices, social media devices, and it's a completely different world. David, I appreciate your time. I wish you success with the book. I hope everybody who's listening right. picks up a copy. Take care, David. All right, bye. Bye-bye, I'm Craig. All right, episode's over. Please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to me. Thank you very much. Hey, podcast. Joe from Team Gary here. Today's highlighted review is I Love You Gary by That Lizard E30. I'm only writing a review because Gary said writing a review would mean a lot to him. So here I am. Real stuff. I love your content. You have helped me tremendously with my self-awareness. Keep those reviews coming. We could highlight yours next.